source of true delight, whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my pleading Actually, you have the beginning five books of the Bible, which basically get Israel from Egypt to the land of Canaan. The next book, Joshua, is the book in which they enter into Canaan and judges tells us about the period before the kings began in Canaan and the, the, the new uh, country to, that God gave them, gave them. And today we are dealing in chapter 6 with Gideon on page 205 in your uh, pew Bible. Gideon chapter 6. <clears throat> I mean, Judges chapter 6. It's like the book of Hezekiah, right? Yeah. We quote Hezekiah very often, quite often, don't we? Um, Gideon is, uh, it's interesting when you begin to explore what all happens in Judges, you realize a lot of the most familiar things that you have always had known and really been a part of everyday language and kind of a part of our culture really come from Judges, like Samson and Delilah, for instance, or in this section, the fleece, you know, putting out a fleece. We're not going to get to that today, but that is in this chapter 6 of, of Gideon. And uh, so very famous events occur in Judges, uh, and it's good to sometimes get your bearings geographically uh, within Judges to, and within the Bible to realize what's going on in this uh, great book. So we begin in chapter 6, verse 1, again on page 205. We're going to read just uh, more or less the first half of this, but spend most of our time on the first ten verses. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's getting to be a boring refrain, isn't it? And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves, and the strongholds. But whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Malachites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. But they would come up with their livestock and their tents They would come like locusts in number, both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. 
And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. We're going to borrow a few phrases from this next section. So I'd like to read through verse 17 or verse 18. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite. While his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. You normally would put it, you know, you'd uh, beat out wheat in the open and up on a hill so the wind could blow it. But he was having to do it hidden away. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speaks to me. Speaks with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. That's the reading of God's word. Uh, Let us pray. Oh Lord, we come to you asking for your grace as you have promised it in Christ Jesus to continue toward your people. Lord, we are encouraged in the great promises of the Old Testament and New Testament of what you will do for your people who entrust themselves to you. You You're the mighty God, the one who makes all things, the one who sustains all things, and you have committed to us. And because you are almighty... There is reason to trust and have hope that no matter what we face in terms of our own sin or our own circumstance and difficulty, you, mighty God, are in control of all things. There is nothing that runs our life but you, ultimately. And as we entrust ourselves to you, we will see your purposes unfold like a flower. We will see, as the hymn writer says, that though the bud is bitter, the flower will be sweet. You are unfolding your purposes hour by hour, your gracious purposes. And though we providence seems to frown upon us, your smile is ever upon us. And your purpose to form us into your image can never be thwarted. 
We thank you, Lord, that we lie in the hand of not any power, but the power of God himself. We thank you that though the whole world lies in the hand of the evil one, as John says, we are in the hand of Christ. We've been delivered out of the domain of darkness. We've been delivered from the kingdom of Satan and the hand of Satan into your gracious hand. Oh, Lord, what that means for our lives, that we belong to you. And you sacrificed yourself in order to have us, to own us, so that we would belong to you. That, and you say that we're your treasure. How can it be? How can you look upon us? Sinners as we are and have been, and make us your treasure. Oh Lord, thank you for such love put upon us as even we sang earlier, that we are in the feast, enjoying the feast of salvation, and, and we have to cry out, why was I made to be a guest? when I would have refused to taste it like everyone else, but you caused us to believe. You gave us hearts. You shone your beauty and glory into our hearts. You would not take no for an answer, though we would forever have said no. Oh, Lord, you've been gracious to us. Drawn us in and served us the feast of salvation in Christ Jesus. And you will keep doing that. You will continue to form us. You will continue this good work that you have begun in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, we praise you and ask that you would continue to fix our hearts upon him. That we could say with Paul, for me to live is Christ. That we can say with Paul, I count all things as loss in order that I may know Christ. May we see in him Endless delight and endless possibilities of exploration and discovery of grace and goodness and power and glory. Oh, Lord, as you wonderfully, mercifully have treasured us, oh, may we treasure, treasure, treasure you. All that we say and think and do, we rely upon you. Continue to make it happen in our lives by your grace. Amen. This uh, first section challenges us uh, to think rightly about uh, the Old Testament. Uh, There's a, as you know, I'm a fan of cartoons, and uh, Farside has one in which these two guys are hunting Uh, No, I'm sorry, they're fishing. And in the background, you see that there's nuclear holocaust. The whole world has been destroyed, you know. (laughs) Nuclear bombs are going off. And, of course, they're saying to each other what it means. He says, what does this mean? It means we can get any fish of any size and there's no limit. (laughs) Like... Yeah, that's what this means. The whole world is destroyed, and now we get to fish however we want to, you know. Uh, kind of miss the meaning of what's happening, right? Uh, and uh, interestingly, I heard, uh, I was visiting another church on vacation years ago, and 
right now I can't remember. I think it might have been in chapter 7, but it was about Gideon. And uh heard a guy preach. He was the assistant uh, of, of that particular church. And it, it wasn't our other PCA church, by the way. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, and so I heard him preach, and then immediately afterwards he said, y'all come on down. Just ended the sermon and said, y'all come on down. And I thought, well, who's coming down? Well, we were right into the Lord's Supper, just like that, okay, and started serving it. But I leaned over to Kay and I said, am I mistaken or did I not hear the name of Jesus this morning? And she said, you are not mistaken. You didn't. We heard something about Gideon and then how you're supposed to do it. Something about Gideon and how you're supposed to do it. Something about Gideon, how you're... Three, three points. Gideon did this, you do it. Gideon did this, you do it. He missed the whole point of the Old Testament, just like these guys missed the point of nuclear holocaust, right? Just totally missed it. Because as even our little children's Bible that we have, I'll say it over and over again because it's such a beautiful way to put it. Every story whispers his name, speaking of Jesus. Every story is only there because there is a Jesus Christ. See, the whole history of the Old Testament wouldn't even exist. Israel wouldn't exist. There wouldn't have been Israel delivered out of Egypt. There wouldn't have been anything were it not for Christ. I believe there wouldn't even be creation were it not for Christ. He's the whole point of creation. The revelation of God's glory is the point of creation. And what's the centerpiece of the revelation of creation in history? It's Jesus Christ. So, we're going to talk about Christ as we have in the past. We'll talk about Christ as we deal with these events of Judges. Unapologetically, because now we have a lens through which we look into the Old Testament. And the picture I've given many times is that it's like when you're in the Old Testament, there's this huge giant room and one cavern in Alabama has this wonderful, uh, huge opening into the beginning vast room. It's like the biggest room of the whole cavern. And you can see everything so beautifully because there's this huge opening to shine light into it. Well, if there was a small opening, you could barely make out all the stalagmites and stalactites and who knows which is which. But um, but imagine that opening then becomes 100 feet wide and suddenly light just pours in and you see beauty like you never could have. That's like the New Testament shining into the Old Testament. The stalagmites and stalactites that we could only see bits of, see some gleaming and beauty suddenly in Christ, wow, all opens up. We see the beauty that was there all along, that it was leading up to this grand revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, a little too long of an introduction, admittedly. But I think it's helpful for us to always be seeing how do you look at the Old Testament? How do we treat the Old Testament? as it's always in some way a precursor and a shadow and a preview in some way of the events that occur through in Jesus Christ. So, in this section, we're just going to look at two things. First, the environment. Uh, I love the way the guy says it in The Matrix, environment. Uh, the environment of uh, disobedience. And then, uh, secondly, 
the unexpected response of God, the environment of disobedience, and then the unexpected response of God. So the environment of disobedience, this, you have to say, in regard to Midian, is not just an occupation of a foreign power, but it's called the wasting of the land. Verse 5, they laid waste to the land as they came in it. This was utter destruction of Israel's economic base, even, as their sheep and ox and donkeys are gone. And it says, whenever they sowed, it happened. Imagine the frustration, the disappointment of this, of working and laboring and working and laboring, and it's just gone. I'm reading a history of England, and it was so sad to see, uh, read of this uh, monastery, sorry, I couldn't think of the word. A monastery in which there were hundreds, maybe thousands of texts that had been painfully, carefully copied by hand. And they were texts of Western culture, Western civilization up to that point. And the, the Vikings, the Danes, uh, Scandinavians came through and they would come upon one of these monasteries that had thousands of these worked, the most precious, precious texts. Just burn it. You know? Just burn it. It's gone. Um, and this is what was happening here. All of their labor just being burned up immediately. And for destructiveness and sheer numbers, they were like locusts just blanketing the land. That's the the picture he gives. And as Schwab says, it's like the innumerable Midianites are the punishment for the rejection of innumerable mercies. That's kind of the what's happening here. You've got so many enemies because for so long you have rejected my many mercies. Now, it's interesting in this word that is used to say that they devoured uh, the land. They devoured the land. This Word is, it means to ruin or to destroy or to spoil something, okay? And it's used, it's been used up to this point to, to describe the destruction of the flood, the destruction of uh, Egypt in a couple of the plagues, and then the destruction also earlier of Sodom and Gomorrah. So a regular word to use to destroy something, and this time, it's God's own land that's being destroyed. But here's an interesting thing. The word is also used to describe the corruption of man before the flood. Two times, in fact. So, man corrupted himself in the flood. God corrupted the, the world with the flood. Okay? That's the picture. Man corrupts himself or ruins himself in wickedness, and then God ruins the earth because of his wickedness. So when Moses was on Mount Sinai with God, and Israel was down below making the golden calf and worshiping it, God said to Moses, go down for your people have acted corruptly. He's using the same word. They've ruined themselves in idolatry. And in Deuteronomy 4, he warns them, don't corrupt yourselves by making an image and doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord. So this ruining of yourself is especially associated with idolatry. And it's also 
used, there's that phrase, doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord, which is the phrase that begins this chapter. Now, if you'll back up to Judges chapter 2, verse 19, when he's rehearsing the pattern of the judges, he says, whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. There's that word. They ruined themselves in idolatry. They ruined themselves in idolatry. And therefore, the Midianites come in and ruin the land. And that's been a pattern. A pattern in uh, the dealings with God with God's people. You ruin yourself, and then your land is ruined. You corrupt yourself, your land will be corrupt. And so for Israel, it was pretty straightforward in this regard. The land would reflect the spiritual health of his people. Okay? You ruin yourself in idolatry, your land will be ruined. For us... This has a particular application. And I think it is in the blessing of the new heavens or new earth or in the final judgment of the lake of fire. And so often what happens in Canaan is a picture of final judgment. It's a picture, a preview of what happens in the final judgment. Unveiling of all things in God's judgment. And Canaan is a picture, and can be a picture, of what God will finally bring us to in terms of heaven. Because it says in the Psalms, the meek will inherit the land, and this becomes in the New Testament, the meek will inherit the earth, you see. The land of Canaan is a picture of final new heavens and earth that God will bring about for his people. So here it is. If you prefer other things to God himself and they have your heart and allegiance instead of him, then Scripture says you're corrupting yourself. You're spoiling yourself as a human being. You're living in corruption. You're ruining what you're meant to be as a person because you're made for fellowship with God. You're made to belong to God, to enjoy God, to receive and rest in God's love through Jesus Christ and to gladly serve God. That's your meaning and dignity as a human being. But if you corrupt yourself by living for yourself and your idols instead of God, your final end will be a corrupted and destroyed environment. Stripped of all the goodness and beauty of God. Now, we don't realize how much of his goodness and beauty, even if you reject God and don't live for him, how much of his goodness and beauty you enjoy every single day. Every piece of food that you eat, every time you breathe, every time you feel the coolness of the air, every time you see the clouds, or what. Thousands of experiences every day of the goodness of God. It surrounds you. It permeates everything about you. God is there presently, good to you in so many ways. You can't even count them all. But in that final day, that will be gone. You think of Israel's situation here. The fear and frustration and deprivation and depression of their situation, living in caves and rocks and the hills because they can't even be where their land is. And that's just a tiny picture of the absolute 
fear and frustration and deprivation and depression that will be there in final judgment. And we've said it before, if you don't want God, then in the end, you get what you want. If you don't want God... In the end, you will receive that. You won't have him, nor will you have any part of his goodness. No God means no good. It means nothing good. All good is gone from your life, from any relationship, from your inner inner psyche, from your environment. It's all destroyed. It's all spoiled and corrupted forever. And yet the opposite is true. For those who helplessly entrust themselves into the care of Christ for forgiveness and for change. And that's basically what it means to come to Christ, to entrust yourself to Him as the one who alone can take away your sin, the one who alone can reform you into the image of God. And for those We're told that all good is yours in the new heavens and the new earth. There there is this final Canaan. Nothing is withheld. If you can imagine it, every relationship that you have there just knocks you off your feet with happiness. (laughs) You can't believe that you get to know that person and they can't believe they get to know you. That's every kind of relationship. Your inner being is whole and full and calm and energetic and eager. You don't even need hope anymore because hope has come. (laughs) You're in the middle of all your dreams have come true. The earth is restored. Work and accomplishment is restored. Discovery is restored. Delight is restored. Satisfaction is restored. And at the center of it all, you have this perfect admiration of God. You have this complete Amazed, astounded, astonished awe. <laughs> in, in this moment of seeing, experiencing this beauty, as we've done in so many small ways in our life, where you're just stopped by something stunning, that experience is stretched out and expanded now to define and enrich every moment of your life and the context of everything you do every relationship and every circumstance. That's just a tiny picture of the new heavens and the new earth. Or, hold on to your idols, hold on to your little private life and refuse to love this God and everything will be removed in the last day. Because your final existence will reflect the state of your spirituality. If you corrupt yourselves with idols, you will be corrupted and live in a corrupted environment forever. Well, in the second place, we have this unexpected response of God. So there's this environment of disobedience. You might say the environment of idolatry, the final environment. But then there's this unexpected response of God. Because they asked for help. They cried out for help to the Lord, right? And when they cried out to the Lord for help, he sent a prophet. So you can just imagine, we didn't ask for a sermon, you know. 
It's like people uh, sometimes kid when we're off somewhere and there's like eight or ten of us and we happen to all be together somewhere and they say, hey, Darwin, you could just preach a sermon. I'm thinking, you don't really mean that. I know you don't really mean that. Um, and so often we think that's the last thing in the world. What army did you bring, they should be asking, you know, you think. We need help against the Midianites. We don't need more information about God. Send us a prophet. Yeah, that's great. So he comes. And what does he say? He proclaims God's saving acts to them. Interesting. They're needing help. They're needing deliverance. They need somebody to come to battle for them, get them out of this situation. He sends a prophet and he tells them about God's grace and God's salvation. So it's short, verses 7 and following, but basically it's, it's very broad and he covers everything God had done for the nation up to that point. And there are five verbs here. And every one of us, God did this, God did that. God led you up, God brought you out, God delivered you, he drove out your oppressors, he gave you the land. And another feature that's so pretty here is, I did this for you. In, in, the, in the original, it's to you, for you, to you, you, you. you know. I, I, I acted for you alone in all that I did. You had my affection. You had my attention. You had my devoted love out of all the nations of the earth. I acted only and always for your good. And that's the effect of this final phrase. I'm the Lord your God. Can you doubt that I'm the Lord your God? That I'm, can, can my devotion to your good be suspect? Can it be doubted that I'm your God committed to your good? And then his last phrase, uh, you shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in verse 10. He basically summarizes the first two commandments. First commandment, you'll have no other gods before me. Second, you will not make idols and worship them. And that's basically, this is shorthand for that. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites. And obviously they did and they made images which you see later in the, uh, this very chapter. <clears throat> And that makes sense, right? That God poured out his love for them and delivered them. He's married them to himself. So you might think, how about a little faithfulness? How about you love me? Because I have loved you so faithfully. And then his speech ends rather abruptly. But you have not obeyed my voice. Apparently he walks off. And if, if there's a pause in the way this is read at that point, you're like, What's happening now? All he said is, I've saved you. I've devoted myself to you. I've told you not to give yourself away, not to be adulterous with me, but you've not obeyed me. And you're wondering, what's he going to do? Is he going to save them? Of course, the next verse, the angel of the Lord comes and sits under this tree, and you have hope. Because Deborah sat under a tree, and it led to good things. And so you're encouraged that perhaps some good is going to come here. But here's the deal in this passage, and I think there's much to learn for us. We tend to want relief. God wants to rehearse for us His salvation. 
Now, in counseling, it can be frustrating, and I know we have some counselors among us, and Jeremy, Jeremy and I had lunch this, this week, even Jeremy Lelick, and I know he runs into this a lot, uh, that someone wants to, they want the, the counselor or God to fix their husband or wife, for instance, right? Or maybe I want God to give me a husband or wife, and that's interesting. Either give me one or fix the one I have. You know, that's kind of how we are. <laughs> um, but there's this thing out here that's causing my suffering, or maybe it's something in here that's causing my suffering, and I want to take it away. I want you to fix it. They cried out for help. He sends a prophet. They cry out for deliverance. He sends God's word. And I want to suggest to you that it's very similar for us. Our issues are very similar. We cry out for help, and he sends us his word. And what is the fundamental message of that word? And you and I need to appreciate this because it's kind of like my dog, Chap, growing up. He would sit at our table, and I was a kid, so I would, you know, do stuff I shouldn't in terms of food with Chap. Uh, But... Sometimes Chap would be sitting there looking eagerly up at me, and and all we had was say vegetable plate, you know. And so I I give him a few beans and carrots and throw them down on the floor, and he goes down. I love the way he would he kind of sniff and then he'd blow a sniff out, you know. <laughs> Get that smell out of my nose, you know. I don't want that, which indicated he wasn't going to eat it, you know. But then what would he do? He would look up at me eagerly, and I'm like. Dude, that's all there is. There ain't no chicken, no beef. There's nothing up here that you want. It's only vegetables. And I know you're looking to me for something else, but that's all I got. And a lot of times with Revelation, it's, it's like that for us. We're looking for him for something, and he brings us his infinite goodness, and we kind of brush it aside. Well, that's not what I wanted. I don't want to hear about your salvation. I needed help. I need deliverance. I need for this situation to stop. And God's sitting there amazingly, almost it seems oblivious, telling us about his salvation. Telling us about the New Testament form of this, Jesus Christ. And I want to suggest to you that he's scratching right where it really is itching, though you may not can feel (laughs) the right way. In the New Testament... Uh, interesting how Paul describes what his preaching is about in 1 Corinthians, for instance. And your elders uh, meet every Friday morning, and uh, we usually start with the passage of Scripture, and we use it as a basis for our praise and our prayer. And this was the passage that we talked about in 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> he says, uh, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. This is 1 Corinthians 1, verse 17. And then he says, not with words of eloquent wisdom, yes, lest instead of saying the gospel be emptied of its power, he describes it in a different way. But it's the gospel he's talking about. He says, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You get that? The gospel is about the cross of Christ. Then he goes on and says, for, and he describes it in a bit different way, the word of the cross. There's two statements. Both are descriptions of the gospel. This is what we preach. But it's the cross of Christ. It's the word of Christ. Then later, just a few verses down, he says, Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. You see, they're wanting other things. They don't like what we're offering. They don't like what we're serving up. 
But no matter what they demand, no matter what they're seeking, this is what we proclaim. We proclaim Christ crucified. That's our, that's our proclamation. And even later he says, uh, Christ, the power of God. Christ crucified is the power of God. Christ is the power of God. And later in chapter 2, I decided to know nothing among you. I didn't come with lofty speech or wisdom, you know, fancy uh, rhetoric and all of this stuff. I didn't come to you this. I knew nothing among you except Jesus Christ, Him crucified. Now, it doesn't mean that He just said the word Jesus over and over and over again, right? It doesn't mean that He didn't proclaim the whole of the Bible. But the whole point of the whole Bible, the whole message of God is summed up, it's centered upon Jesus Christ. And for us, we have to see that this is always part of the issue with anything that we face. It's how am I related to Christ? How am I devoted to Christ? Am I trusting Christ? Do I know Christ? Paul says in Ephesians 3, we're preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. And so the, 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 the Christian life, you know, the Christ in life, is about lifelong devotion to Christ. As Paul says in Romans 14, none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Whether we live or die, we're the Lord's. That's what our whole life is about. And so we read, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the word of Christ richly dwell in you. For me to live is Christ, Paul says. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, he says. Whatever your issue is, and your issues are important to God, the issue always includes Christ. It's always connected to Christ. Your view of Christ, your trust in Christ, your enjoyment of Christ, your devotion to Christ. You're living out your new life in Christ. And so, He comes to us, no matter what our issues are, He comes to us, that we might see and understand His grace in Christ, to, un- to rest in that grace, and to live out that grace. And so you may come to worship looking for specific answers to a particular problem, and you might sift through the sermon and the hymns and the confession, you look for the answer and say, ah, they didn't address it today. They didn't address my real issue, my real problem. But we don't realize that the answer is in the worship itself. Partly your answer is in just coming to be a part of the people of God and praising God in song and the glorious music that we've had this morning, rehearsing God's grace and confession and assurance, rehearsing His truth and the confession of faith, seeing God's grace and glory in the Word. We come here to re-admire God, to re-trust God, to renew and refresh our admiration and trust. We need this more than we need immediate relief. We need Him always. Him always. And often my real problem is not what's happening to me, but how I view what is happening to me. And in counseling, people many times want relief. And many approaches, especially the world offers, are bent on that one goal. How do I help you get relief? But the real purpose of biblical counseling is to help you glorify and worship God and to give yourself away to people. And for many of us, we're looking up 
And God says, here's the good thing for you. Love me. Give yourself away to others. And we just sniff it out of our nose. We think, I don't want to smell that. I don't want that. That's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for help here. I'm looking for something else. Many may wonder why a counselor would call you to deeper worship when you think your problem is way over here. Ralph Davis, uh, the commentary that we have available for you, says this, Like Israel, we may want to escape our circumstances while God wants us to interpret our circumstances. Okay? Interpret. View it from a different standpoint. In some cases, he said, we need understanding more than relief. And in some cases, we may want out of a bind, but God wants us to see our idolatry. Not necessarily in every bind, but sometimes that's the case. And I love what Wilcox said in his commentary. One thought-provoking way of defining a preacher's job is this, to explain what is really going on. I like that. To explain what's really going on. It's really going on spiritually. It's really going on in our warfare with the evil one. What's really going on in our service to him. Gideon's little whining protests later is rather pathetic in the light of the uh, prophet telling him what went on. Because he, he said, look, it looks like God's abandoned us. God's, you say God is with me, but look, why is everything happening like it is happening? And he had already just said, it's not that God abandoned you. You've abandoned God. That's what's really going on here. You look at it one way. No. And, and so often we think that God is against me. God's punishing me. God's doing this. God's doing that. And God has committed himself in Christ Jesus to his people who trust him. And he never turns away from wanting to do you good and desiring your good. But we look at him Differently, So the, the issue in, in part is, here's you, you walk in with a little God and a giant problem, and that needs to change so that you have this large, glorious God that fills your horizon, and your problem is in context of that glorious God. What happens so often is, the pro- God is in the context of your problem. And he's this small thing over here. And your problem is your idol. And it's all that consumes you. You need to have a different God at that point, you see. And what good is deliverance from a circumstance if God leaves your heart behind? I want to end with this. He's after your heart. Whether you like it or not, he's after your heart. He's after real change in your life. We could quote verses... On and on about how God's about the heart. The new covenant. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will put the fear of me in their hearts, he says in Jeremiah. In Ezekiel 36, I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. On and on and on it talks about how he's going to deal with our hearts. And the point is, he creates a new you from the inside out. And sometimes it will look like in your life that God is unconcerned with what's going on in your life, your circumstances, your suffering, your difficulties, your setbacks, your disappointments, your personal heartbreak and tragedies. And first of all, we'll have to say, in the new heavens and the new earth, he will deal with all those. 
He hates all of that ultimately, and he removes it completely from his people. So don't think God's unconcerned about those things. He is bent on getting rid of all of that in the end. So that's point number one. Secondly, though, now it serves his greater purpose, which is to conform you more and more to his image, to open up more rooms for his glory to shine into your life, to enable you to trust him more and more. And so he says to Gideon, I am with you. And this just means God's choosing of us, devoting himself to us, and committing himself to us. And like Davis says in his commentary, basically God has nothing else more or more to offer you than himself. Just think about that. God says, I will be with you. Is that enough? Well, it is. But is that, is that the food you want from the table? For God to say, look, I, in all my glory and all my goodness, I am with you. I'm committed to you in the midst of this circumstance. Sometimes that's all he says. Doesn't change the circumstance. Doesn't change the difficulty. He says, I am with you. And for his people, it has to be enough. More than enough. It has to fill our hearts eventually. Because we won't know why. We won't know where. We won't know what. We don't know how or when. But we do know who. Do you know who? And that's all that we need. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you give us what we so desperately need, and that is yourself. More of yourself and more of yourself and more of yourself. Lord, make us more and more willing to accept that deal, to be able to count it all joy when we encounter various trials because in it we know we're going to have more of you and that's what we're living for. Worship you better, to trust you more, to see more of your goodness, that you really are the whole point of our lives every day. Oh Lord, make it be so. Make it be so. We can treasure your precious word which reveals your beauty and glory to us. Bless us, Lord, to live out Live out your glory in this world. The pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain, break rain. Shades of night and chase my fears away. Won't you chase my fears away?